According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me one more time in Proverbs 13. We'll see if we uh, wrap it up today or not. We're uh, down at the end of the chapter, looking at the final quartet of verses in uh, verses 22 through 25. Chapter 13 closes with a quartet of verses centered on families and inheritance. Verse 22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And then finally, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. All right, so that's what we're going to cover. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of His truth, shall we pray. Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, to open our eyes, to feed us from your truth. Father, help us to see what we need to see and to hear what we need to hear, to to absorb what we need, Father, that we might receive the word of God implanted that is able to save our souls. And so, Father, uh, humble us to receive it on that basis, um, far more than just an academic, intellectual knowledge, understanding. But Father, we want to actually have it implanted, to receive it implanted to the depths of our being. And uh, just thank you for making this possible. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so in this quartet, uh, we've covered the first of the verses at length. That was last week. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Uh, Not just one generation later, but two generations later, thinking down to that second and that third generation, which is interesting to me because we'll have a question tonight related to the wrath of God to the third and to the fourth generation as far as that goes. But um, anyway, as we talk about this third generation, this is the generation that makes it possible to call upon the name of the Lord in a corporate worship application that we saw uh, last week. I took a little side trip last week to Genesis chapter 4 to show the three generations of, of worship when men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And uh, here we have again three generations because the good man is leaving his inheritance to his children's children. And uh, the principles that we saw there. Uh, the point was divine viewpoint and human viewpoint are diametrically opposed in their financial priorities. Whereas uh, the good man is working, he's producing, and he's blessing others. And he's blessing others on an intergenerational scope. He's not just blessing his peers, he's not just blessing his generation or people in his day and age, but he, his blessings are going to long outlast him. Uh, his blessings will continue to be functional on this earth when he's no longer functional on this earth. All right, And that's what happens when his blessings continue to provide for his children and his children's children. So the good man works, produces, and blesses others on an intergenerational scope. The selfish man, on the other hand, the sinner, lives only for self. And I think we see it here as well, 
the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. It's uh, certainly implied in, uh, in that, but with these other passages as well, including Romans 14, 7, 2 Corinthians 5, 15, and, and more, I think uh, it's, it's not difficult to see how the sinner is selfish. That when you're not living for Christ, you're living for self. And the Bible says we all do that before we're saved. Everybody before they're saved is living for self. That's the nature of fallen humanity. It's only once we become saved then that we can walk in a manner pleasing to Him, a manner that's uh, on behalf of the one who died uh, for us. So the sinner lives only for self, volitionally blesses nobody. Volitionally blesses nobody. When it says that the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous, I think it's pretty clear that the sinner is not volitionally on board with that. That uh, the, the uh, sinner, the renegade, the, and, 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 and by the way this could not only be an unbeliever in context but maybe a, even a reversionistic believer. Somebody that is so far walking in darkness that uh, he has lost capacity to volitionally participate in, uh, in where his finances are headed. Uh, so I, I don't see the uh, selfish sinner here volitionally blessing anybody. And if it is stored up for the righteous, that's in spite of what he has planned. And that's maybe after his death or maybe beyond anything that's out of his control. He has no idea uh, how his wealth is going to be redistributed to, uh, as a part of God's provision and grace to his children. So uh, he volitionally blesses nobody yet is ultimately overruled by the sovereignty of God. And uh, it's not the only passage that speaks to this either, by the way. I think Proverbs 28.8 is very comparable, and Job 27, verses 16 and 17 are likewise very comparable. So let me just real quickly read both of those in case you weren't here last week or you were here but you were daydreaming. Um, Proverbs 28.8. You're paying attention to that. Okay, good. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. And so here we have accumulation of great wealth, but it's done by wicked means, it's done in a sinful way, and it's going to be redistributed for somebody else. He's gathering it for him who is gracious to the poor. And so that abundance is going to get redirected. And the gracious, the believer of grace, is going to be instrumental in, in distributing these uh, blessings on a grace basis. Job 27, verses 16 and 17. This is why we don't need a, a, a government program to redistribute wealth. God already has a divine program to do that in His wisdom. Job 27, verses 16 and 17. Though he piles up silver like dust and prepares garments as plentiful as the clay, he may prepare it, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. And so th- there it is, all right? And he's been piling it up, but he's not going to uh, enjoy it. He has no capacity to enjoy it. And then we'll talk about satisfaction capacity when we get to the end of the chapter. Uh, verse 25 uh, expands the idea of satisfaction capacity. That the righteous in grace has all kinds of satisfaction capacity and the uh, unrighteous uh, has no capacity whatsoever. You can be filthy rich and unsatisfied uh, as the day is long. Alright, so that was 
what we covered last week. I'll let Ecclesiastes and Psalms and Luke uh, go where they are. Luke, that's the parable when Jesus talked about the rich man that was had too many, uh, you know, the barns were too small, he couldn't stockpile everything, so he needed bigger barns. And Jesus called him a fool and said, uh, you know, so is the man that is rich in earthly things, but he's not rich towards God. And uh, called him a fool, and his soul was required, and uh, his money was not. <laughs> All right? His soul was required. He says, this night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have what you have stored. God redirects where He wants that wealth to be. Alright, so we get to verse 23 then. My point is this, the best, this is subpoint B in the outline, the best circumstances for the working poor are found in a land of freedom and justice. The best circumstances for the working poor are found in a land of freedom and justice. And when I read Proverbs 13, 23, I see two things here. Uh, there's an A half and a B half of the poetry. Yeah, all these verses have an A and a B with two, uh, two halves to the, to the poetry. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor. And so in the first half, we have, uh, we have uh, the recognition here that there's plenty of food. It's abundant. In fact, it's sufficient and uh, principles of sufficiency and abundance often overlap in the vocabulary, uh, but they're, they're very linked. Often times we find them connected to verbs of satisfaction, and uh, so I'm not surprised that we have satisfaction in verse 25 about uh, satisfying the appetite or being in need. Uh, so close with this term for abundance or sufficiency. But sufficient food is in the fallow ground of the poor. Adequate food, abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor. And so God has designed the earth to be productive. And God has designed for the, for the earth to harvest, uh, for, for us to harvest a crop from the earth itself. And we can do so in His principles. We can do so uh, on His calendar meaning that we want to let the land lie fallow on a schedule where the land gets a Sabbath rest and we learn the blessings of rest and we understand that we don't want to overwork the land but uh, even under a fallow circumstance there's still abundant food that's there. And the uh, poor is expected to go work that uh, fallow land. The poor is expected to till and uh, all of the, the welfare programs of the Old Testament were centered on gleaning that they would go out into the fields and they would, they would reap the gleanings of the, uh, of the harvest. So that's the first half. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor. So why are you hungry? There's food, go work for it. Okay? And that's the, uh, that's the principle. And then in the second half, but it is swept away by injustice. So we want to make sure while we are making provision for the working poor, in other words, uh, you know, if a man is not willing to work, neither let him eat. But if he is willing to work, then he's able to eat. That's the provision. This earth is designed for that. Um, but one thing that will destroy God's design is um, injustice, okay? Because it's the God of justice that has designed this system for us and the expectation that we will work and produce and eat and share and, uh, and operate in grace. It is swept away by injustice. So we want to make sure that uh, for the working poor, for anyone that's working, that there is no injustice, that what he has worked for he gets to keep. 
that it's not there's going to be no injustice to take it away and give it to somebody that didn't work. See, and uh, and then you end up with inequities and injustice and and all these things. And and what I think Satan has the best field day in the world is when he champions injustice while labeling it justice. He he champions unfairness by calling it fairness. Okay, and 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 that's Satan's. He's just. I think he has a thrill doing it. I think it just uh, it just causes him to laugh more than anything to to change vocabulary, right? To 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 like he does with marriage. He, he has this thing called you know called fornication marriage that that he's just laughing about in uh, in uh, in that. Anyway, he doesn't call it fornication marriage. I call it fornication marriage because that's what it is. All right. Anyway. Uh, vocabulary is important. When you, when you control the language, when you determine what the words mean, if you surrender what things are named, you're surrendering sovereignty. And we know that. God gave Adam the sovereignty to name those animals. God gave, and Adam named those animals in his delegated sovereignty. If you, uh, if you name something, I named all my children, you name all your pets, you name whatever. When you give something a name, you have the authority to do that. Otherwise, the one who really has authority to do that will give the real name. And then uh, they'll deal with you for <laughs> whatever you're doing or trying to do. All right. So let's not surrender the language. Let's not surrender the culture. Let's keep things. Uh, if we're going to talk about sweeping away injustice, if we're going to truly... Um, deal with justice, God's justice, divine justice, all right, then we have to do so biblically and not, uh, not pursue Satan's program on, on different things. All right. But he loves to do it, so there we are. The best circumstances for the working poor are found in a land of freedom and justice. Now you'll notice, let's look at Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 19, one of the most hated books of the Bible. Unbelievers don't like it because it spotlights, spotlights a whole lot of sin. But even believers struggle with Leviticus because it's complicated and there's blood everywhere and there's, there's ritual and liturgy and complicated things. I'm glad I'm not a Levitical priest. I'll tell you that right now. But um, Leviticus 19 verses 15 through 17. Remember this is, these are the, uh, there's a, the, the law, the constitution for the theocracy, for the nation of Israel. Okay? And these various codexes that include the civil law and the ceremonial law and the religious law and different things. We wouldn't adapt all of it for our nation because we're not a theocracy, so we wouldn't adapt everything under Mosaic law, but we can still glean principles out of Mosaic law and realize it applies to the Jewish nation, it applies to the Gentile nations. Okay? If God does not like injustice uh, for His Jewish nation, why would He tolerate it for a Gentile nation? See, so we better uh, have uh, justice in our land. Verse 15 says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. So it goes both directions. You're not going to be partial to the poor. You're not going to have miscarriages of justice that, that uh, award the, the person uh, that's just looking for a, you know, the, the courtroom lottery uh, going to soak it to the rich because they've got deep pockets and they can afford it. Ooh, I spilled coffee on my lap. McDonald's can pay me three, $3 million. All right. Why? Is that, is that just? Is that equitable? Is that fair? Well, they can afford it. That's not the point of what they can afford. All right. You spilled coffee on your lap. 
you, <laughs> you, uh, you know, some things are accidents and some things people aren't at fault for. And uh, if you're going to assign fault, then why were you so clumsy? <laughs> All right. Anyway, but that's not the culture we live in, is it? So I can be totally clumsy and I can be completely at fault and still demand that the deep pockets pay me. All right. And when, when we start to tolerate such a thing, we're in trouble. Then it goes the other direction. When the poor guy doesn't get a fair shot because the rich guy, he's got the best lawyers and the judge in, in his pocket. And so he's, got, uh, he's paying off uh, who he has to pay off and the prosecutor and the defense attorneys and all the judges and everything is all taken care of because he's connected. He's absolutely connected. And I think we see a lot of that with the, the Weinstein stuff going on, all the other... Uh, things. If you're connected to the right people, then stuff gets overlooked. See, well, so don't be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. That's why in the statues, anyway, Lady Justice is supposed to be blind. She's blindfolded. She's not supposed to see if it's you know a homeless vagrant or Bill Gates standing in front of her at the in the courtroom. Okay, um, that's the design. And our nation was founded on that principle, but uh, we're, we haven't done so well on that lately. All right. Uh, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. It's a neighbor issue. And so we have families that are connected into clans, into tribes, into nations. And uh, as we interact with our neighbor, this is what we have to do. So you are not to go about as a slanderer among your people. That's another form of theft. That's another form of fraud in uh, tearing down their reputation. And you are not to act against the life or the soul of your neighbor, I am the Lord. And you know, a lot of things we do are theft in the sense that they do soul damage. If you damage somebody's property, are you not stealing from them? You're diminishing the value of their property? If you vandalize uh, something or or harm something? Or what if you harm their soul? Because uh, your your flagrant... uh, Carnality is is uh, having an impact uh, in your neighborhood and among your neighbors, among your friends, and the moral standing of your of your uh, uh, neighbors is being diminished. Okay, and so uh, how does that affect their soul? And and does it become more accepted? Does it become more tolerant? Does it become more blasé? Does it become and now it's just everywhere. No one even thinks about it anymore. And now if someone stands on biblical morals, they're a kook. There's some kind of a Puritan and Bible thumper and whack, whack job and, and how dare you. And, and, and it seems now that instead of the rule, it's the exception. And it's uh, going to become very, uh, it's gonna become very uh, marginalized if it already is not uh, before we know it. Well, I don't want to act against the soul of my neighbor. I don't want to conduct myself in a way that my neighbor's soul is going to be impacted. I am the Lord. Verse 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. This is actually sanctioned for patriotism, sanctioned for a love of country, a love of your your countrymen. Because remember, that's part of your family and your clan and your tribe and your nation that we identify with one another. We live in a territory, we share a language and a culture and and values, or we're supposed to. And uh, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. And this reminds me, there's a New Testament passage, if you're rebuking your brother, you don't treat him as an enemy, but you admonish him as a brother. 
And it's the same thing in our patriotism for our fellow citizens. Uh, we shouldn't hate them, although it seems like half this country hates the other half of this country, um, and vice versa. Um, we should be able to put the differences aside and say, hey, look, you know, we've got all these political parties and viewpoints and whatever, whatever. But at the end of the day, we're all American and we all love our freedom and we all used to be able to salute the flag and recite the Pledge of Allegiance and celebrate holidays and so forth. Not anymore, okay? Because there's half of this country that hates the other half of the country and will no longer honor the flag. We'll no longer salute the flag. We'll no longer recite the Pledge of Allegiance that rejects Thanksgiving, rejects, uh, oh, especially Columbus Day. Oh my, that's got to be Indigenous Peoples Day now. And, uh, and all the things that are going on. Fourth of July, they reject Fourth of July. That's not Independence Day, okay? Not to a segment of our culture. That's unfortunate. So you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor but you shall not incur sin because of him. And notice, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so it's interesting, when nationalism is instituted as the fourth and final law of divine establishment, when nationalism is instituted, then it is to nationalism, it is to the state, it is to Caesar that the sword is granted. We no longer have family justice taking justice against another family. We don't have Hatfield and McCoy feuds of of, uh, clans that get together and have clan warfare, tribal warfare. That stuff happens all over the world today in the Muslim world, in the Arab world, in the African world. Anywhere where there's there's still tribes and clans, there's feuds and there's, there's tribal warfare, clan warfare. The Bible says no. Family and clan takes care of family and clan until... It's the time for vengeance, and then vengeance belongs to the state. Well, God says vengeance belongs to me, but he delegates the sword to the state. And that's for the execution of, of capital punishment, as per Genesis chapter 9. All right? We want to be clear on that. Anyway, so for the working poor, we want justice. And, uh, and really, I listed 15 through 17 there, but Leviticus 19, uh, it's pretty much 15 is the, is the key verse that really highlights no partiality in justice. And when you institute partiality, if, if there's a class of people that gets a little extra, then that's partiality and that's injustice by definition. Fairness is fairness, which means no extras. Um, Amos, Amos chapter 2, I like Amos. Amos was famous. And Amos um, was the original social justice warrior of his day. All right, so Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, get to the minor prophets. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. If you get to Obadiah, you've gone too far. But you're likely to find Amos before you find Obadiah. Amos chapter 2. And I know, you're just tapping glass, you're not flipping pages. So, Well, some of you are still flipping pages, good for you. Um, Amos chapter 2. And um, this is interesting. Uh, the book of Amos, we haven't been here for a long, long while, but uh, remember the introduction from 1 1 the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa. Okay, he's not a prophet or the son of a prophet, he's a sheep herder. 
um, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake, the most famous earthquake in uh, the Old Testament. All right, well, two years before that, he gets this vision. And then we get wrath. We get judgment, expressions of judgment that are poured forth. And you'll, you're going to notice this. Uh, they're not happy messages. And um, as you're looking at chapter 1 and chapter 2, you've got um, the Lord roars from Zion and from Jerusalem. He utters His voice. Uh, in verse 3 of chapter 1, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke its punishment. And you're going to see this formula, you're going to see this language repeated again and again and again. In verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke its punishment. And so we have a number and then we have a number one higher than that first number. We discuss this in Proverbs when we talk about there are six things the Lord hates, yea, seven that are an abomination to Him. Okay, And that's the X and X plus one formula that uh, the Hebrews were very fond of. Uh, Amos 1.9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke its punishment. In verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Uh, verse 13, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Most of these are pretty gruesome all right, when you read through. And that idea of to the third and to the fourth, well again tonight Doug's going to have a question on the wrath of God to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me, whereas God promises loving kindness to a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. And so uh, anyway I find it interesting that judgment here is to three and to four and there is no revoking. We get into chapter two, uh, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four I will not revoke its punishment. In verse four, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. Aha, they're not all Gentile nations now. Judah's getting uh, getting spotlighted. And then down to verse six, it's Israel's turn, the northern kingdom of Israel. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Now notice, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. So here is uh, what today is commonly referred to as social justice or social injustice. We've got a problem. There's injustice in the land. And uh, there's money to be made. And if someone gets hurt in the process, oh well, there's money to be made. And so the righteous can be profitable. They sell the righteous for money. Never mind the fact that they're righteous and you're not, you're going to make money on this deal. And then the needy in exchange for a pair of sandals. How do you value the other person? How cheap has life become? And the, the life of a, of a poor person, a, you know, a homeless person, a vagrant, these uh, urban outdoorsmen that we have here in, uh, in, in uh, Austin, right? Yeah, that's the politically correct term, okay? I didn't make that up. I, I took that from the people who make up those kind of things. Okay, because they're not vagrants. You can't call them hobos or bums or, you know. That's, that's dehumanizing. Um, but see, the thing is, how, 
how do we devalue? How do we dehumanize and devalue? And the thing is, if you are living in a culture that is so uh, perverted in injustice or versus injustice rather, well then of course, of course there are victims uh, to be victimized and you get what you can. That's how the carnal mind works. Not how God works. And so uh, we see why the ministry of Amos uh, I, I think was very popular amongst the people and uh, not so well received by the powerful, by the uh, priesthood and the, and the king and so forth. Alright, so they, uh, they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. So yeah, we've got society breaking down on all kinds of levels uh, for justice versus injustice, for finances, uh, for sexual perversions, um, and all of this. On garments, verse 8 says, on garments taken as pledges they stretch out beside every altar. You know, and, and, and Jesus talks about this too. If you're going to take a man's cloak for a pledge and it's a cold night, well then give him his cloak back. Don't, uh, you know, let's, let's have grace one to another. Even if, we're, even if we're loaning him money and that's the security deposit, if that's all he's got, well then give it back. It's a cold night, you know. And, and Anyway, Jesus addressed some of these issues. But now on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out, okay? That's you know, sexual stuff. They're they're gonna they're gonna throw a, they're gonna throw a, an orgy. They're gonna um, and, and they're taking delight in it. Ooh, do you know whose cloak this is? Ooh, do you know who this is? Look who I have power over. Look who I have. Look at this. This is you know, and it's somebody. It's an enemy. It's an it's somebody. It's a rival. It's a whatever. And so, not only do I have custody of his cloak, what a shameful thing. He's in a tough spot anyway. If he's giving his garments, if he's giving his robes as collateral, that he's already in a, in a, in a, in a, on the verge of selling land and needing redemption and going into slavery. Um, he's, he's kind of on a last resort giving these things as pledge to avoid slavery. And, and now you're going to accept it as a pledge, but you're going to defile it, you're going to mock him, you're, gonna, you're going to um, celebrate somebody else's humble circumstances. And uh, you're going to stretch out on this garment. And in their house of their uh, God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. In the house of their God. Which God is that by the way? (laughs) Their God. Doesn't appear to be the Lord God of Israel. Doesn't appear to be uh, this is not sanctioned in in the temple. So what what God are they serving? As they uh, throw their uh, uh, these, uh, you know, sex and wine and all the debauchery of, of this religion. Anyway, that's uh, Amos's message. How about Micah? So Amos was famous, Micah was oh, I don't know. Got to find a rhyme there. Uh, Micah 3. Another minor prophet here. And you get the idea that these minor prophets were, were serving, most of them, during the divided kingdom and during a time of great apostasy and, and uh, things weren't, uh, weren't so great. Uh, Micah 3, the whole chapter really, but the, um, we'll notice here the injustice. 
And I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You know, you're the heads, you're the rulers. You're the tribal chiefs, you're the family, you're the clan chiefs, you're, the, um, you're in office, you're entrusted with responsibility. You should be teaching others about justice versus injustice and you need to be setting the standard, living by example so that the generations following after you can walk in those, uh, in those steps. Instead, you're the biggest uh, justice perverters there are. You who hate good and love evil. Oh, that's a problem. They're turning it around backwards. They're supposed to love good and hate evil. But they've got it upside down and backwards. Who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones. It's not enough. I mean, what do you want from these people? You want your pound of flesh? What are you going to get from them? Who eat the flesh of my people, strip them of their skin from them, break their bones, chop them up as for the pot as meat in a kettle. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but He will not answer them. Instead, He will hide His uh, face from them at at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. And it's interesting, when they're so abusive and when they're so predatory and they've so defiled justice that they're victimizing their people. This is God rebuking these politicians that should be caring for the population. Instead, they're feasting on them. And then here comes judgment. They're going to try to get religious all of a sudden and call out to God. And oh, you know, yeah, the Twin Towers fell and, and so everyone wants to get religious and call out, you know, God bless America and oh, help us with this and whatever. Well, what was the state of our nation that brought us to that point of judgment? Is he listening or is he hiding his face? Have we been given over? Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. So it just depends. Who's paying the piper? You call the tune. And, and if, uh, you know, hey, you're going to put something in my teeth? Okay. Whatever. You know, the, the preacher that's in it for the money, you know, are you lining my pocket? Uh, is, uh, are you a, a wealthy contributor to this ministry? then uh, yeah, okay. We, you'll, get, you'll get a happy message for you. Can, we can have peace. But if you're giving me nothing, you put nothing in my mouth, well, that's jihad. Holy war. Therefore it will be night for you, without vision and darkness for you, without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will become dark over them. The seers will be ashamed, the diviners will be embarrassed, indeed they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. And that's uh, the judgment to be expected. Um, more justice here. In verse 8, on the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. And so Micah is going to be a faithful prophet. He's going to speak for the truth of the Word of God. He's going to speak for justice. Even if that means he's uh, going to tell the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, that they... Uh, they need to repent. You know, are you gonna are you gonna afraid to preach to a politician because he's powerful? Micah wasn't. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight. <laughs> you know? 
when when you are so given over to injustice, I think it's totally reflective of a hatred for God's standard of righteousness, for God's standard of justice. It's not just that they want to substitute one over the other, they hate the one that they're trying to replace with the one of their own making, with the one of their own design. Because they absolutely hate the God of Israel, the the God of, of righteousness. And so because they abhor justice, they twist everything that is straight. So I mean, you can do this. Just make a game out of this. Read, start reading headlines and then just ask yourself, all right, whatever the issue is, is it, is it sexual? Is it male-female? Is it national? Is it, is it whatever it might be, economic? Whatever it might be, I don't care. You can just, you, you know. So here's the issue, here's what the Bible says, but because they hate that, here's the view they're going to take. They're absolutely going to take. They're going to, they hate borders. The Bible supports borders, hate borders. The, the, the Bible supports husbands as head of their marriages, as, as parents as head of their children. Boom, they're going to attack that. Feminism is going to deny any, any patriarchy. Man, we've got to throw down this patriarchy, right? Or um, obviously the, 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 the sex thing is, is totally outdated. We've got to update our Bible and get it with the modern times. Uh, so, you know, if the Bible says this, you can... You can you can bet your paycheck on it. Here's what the other side's going to say. Because they hate what the Bible says. So, they abhor it. And the same thing with justice. Justice is what we say it is. Justice is according to our standard. And because we perceive uh, that there have been previous injustices, we're going to answer that with our own injustices. What is that? All right. So they twist everything that is straight. Who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Really? You think God's going to be pleased with that? Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. <laughs> that sounds like our politics, doesn't it? Oh, but we want to get money out of politics. Good luck with that. Okay? It's been going on forever. It's going to keep going on forever until the King of Kings is seated on the throne. And uh, there it is. Yeah, we've got the best legal system money can buy. I believe that. Okay. All right. <laughs> Her priests instruct for a price. Her prophets divine for money. Okay. They're definitely the for profit prophets. That, uh, yeah. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Look at us, Lord. Look at what we've done. But see, they're leaning on him, not for support, not for to sustain them. They're leaning on him to pressure him to say, hey, you know what I've done for you? Now you gotta I scratch your back. All right. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, the mountain of the temple will become a high place of a forest. And uh, so this is Micah's rebuke there for injustice in the land. No, the best circumstances are a land of freedom and justice. A land when a man can raise his family, can work, provide for his family, that is not fearful of injustice sweeping it away from him. That's the, uh, the blessings of freedom. And the Bible supports that. We move on to verse, uh, back to Proverbs 13 then, and So verse 23, abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. Verse 24, 
He, withhold, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And this is the spare the rod, spoil the child principle, and this is so true. Parental discipline is parental love. Parental discipline is parental love, by definition. And the undisciplined tolerance, the, uh, the non-disciplining parents that they hate their children. And this too is something that Satan loves to twist. He loves to take and call it love. It's not love, it's hate. When you are so permissive and you are not disciplining your child. When you don't establish the boundaries, when you don't fix the parameters, when you don't apply the consequences for transgressing the parameters. That's not love, that's hate. You will hate your son because you're teaching him how to be a transgressor. You're teaching him that rules don't matter. You're teaching him that fathers are uh, fickle or are faithless. And that's, uh, that's the opposite of what you're supposed to be painting. You should be painting a picture of God the Father in your discipline of your son. So parental discipline is parental love. And so uh, in, in we're going to connect this with Hebrews 12. I mean this is what the scriptures do. It describes what child is there whom his father does not discipline. You can answer that from Proverbs. The child whom the father hates. The child who the father does not love. The child that the father denies and says you're not my child. I deny that I'm your father. And uh, there's, there's a hatred to that and there is no discipline with that. But if that child is claimed and that child is the heir and that child is expected to uphold the uh, standards that the father is establishing. Okay? We're talking biblically here. This is a part of the, the family, the clan, the tribe, and the nation. Alright? Laws of divine establishment. And so... Um, these, uh, these are the principles that hold true even on into modern times. And say, oh, come on, this is all old-fashioned. We don't do this, we don't do that, we don't do these other things. Well, there might be practices that we no longer engage in, but the principles are timeless. And maybe the practices ought to make a comeback. <laughs> all right? I can arrange my daughter's weddings uh, this afternoon. All right? Just come talk to me. <laughs> Anyway, now I, I know people that have, uh, you know, from other cultures, a man that came from Nigeria that I worked with in, uh, in the sheriff's department, and his was an arranged marriage. He met his wife on their wedding day, and they learned to love one another because they were going to be honorable to their families, to their clan. That was, that was a huge deal in, in that, that culture, that background where they came from. And at the point I met him, they'd been married 17 years, so I guess they worked. <laughs> they learned, uh, they learned, they liked each other well enough to have four, four or five kids, I think, six kids. Um, anyway, but see, that's the, in our culture, we, we're just aghast. Oh my, how would you, how do you marry somebody that you don't love? And again, we've got this Valentine's Day romance idea of, of what marital love is supposed to be, and it's not a, the agape love of Scripture. Okay. And uh, anyway, that's don't get me going on that. But nevertheless, parental discipline for the sake of the second and the third generation 
I want my children to have a godly fear of the Lord, to be walking in the light, so that they are training their children to have a godly fear of the Lord, to be walking in the light. If I'm going to have an inheritance, I'm going to pass a heritage to my children's children, then it's got to be on that basis. It's got to be in the Word of God. All right? And so parental discipline is parental love that's going to be shaping them up that way. And I pray, I pray to God that uh, there's other parents out there doing the same thing with their children because I don't know who, you know, I've still got three out of four unmarried children. And the first one found a believer. I'm thankful for that. (laughs) Uh, Are the next three, are they going to find believers? Are they going to find believers that are disciples in the Word of God? That are serious about their Christian walk? I'm starting to wonder. <laughs> All right. Uh, I met a pastor yesterday and he thinks he can lose his salvation. So, uh, wow. Okay. Um, what do we do with, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they name the name of Christ, they say they're saved. Are they disciples? Are they in the Word of God? Are they living? Are they growing? Are they being transformed? Are they glorifying Jesus Christ? Are they serious about it? All right. Parental discipline is parental love. Um, So yeah, what happens if you're raising your kids with this kind of discipline and nobody else is? And so, uh, you know, they they start encountering that. And they encounter that in high school. They encounter that in college. They encounter that wherever. And and, and these, these classmates don't have the same norms and standards. They don't have the same discipline. The parents are completely undisciplined. The parents are so whacked out in providing, they're giving the condoms to the kids and saying, hey, sleep over here. And at least, we, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? All right. Proverbs 19 and verse 18. Let me get back to my slide. <laughs> so, say, soapbox, Pastor, get back on your slide. Discipline your son while there is hope. <laughs> All right. I love that. So don't stop. What happens if you stop? What are you saying? You're saying it's hopeless? What do you do then? There's procedures then. If there's no hope then, you go to the city gates, you go to the elders in the gates and say, look, I've been doing this, but I've lost hope. Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. When you lose hope, that's when you go to the elders in the gates and say, look, I've lost hope. I've disciplined him, he's not listening. And the, and the elders of the gates will agree. And the clan then has the, uh, has the function within the clan. See, this is not the extrajudicial, you're not going after another clan, you're not going after, it's not a war against, uh, for that you need the state. But the clan takes care of the clan. The family takes care of the family. So, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his uh, death. Uh, Proverbs twenty two fifteen. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That's the way it goes. They're kids, they're children, they're fools. They're, they're, they're uh, pethy, remember pethy? They don't want to stay pethy. We don't want adult pethy. We want to train the child pethy to grow up to be the adult man of wisdom, woman of wisdom. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. If you hate your children, you will not administer that rod. But if you love your children, you will administer that rod. They need it. They absolutely need it. 
and your clan needs it, your tribe needs it, your nation needs it. You know, the, the damage that gets done to a society because these unloved children are roaming the streets. They're doing what they want to do and they're petty. They're fools. They're unloved, they're undisciplined, and it's um, they're, they're roaming the streets like a pack of beasts, is how the scripture describes it. Uh, Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You know, God is marvelous. He's, done, he's designed biologically, it's not an accident of evolution that put all those marvelous nerve endings in the, uh, in the seat of education, right? We call that the board of education and the seat of learning. The, um, the, uh, the, 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 the gluteus maximus is marvelously designed by our creator to be very um, pain receptive. Not, not Darwinian evolution that put that there. God put that there. And uh, thank God that he did. And, uh, and uh, nothing lethal, nothing damaging, nothing harmful. You're not breaking any bones when you're spanking the, uh, the, the, the backside. Okay? And here's what you do. He's not going to die. Even better. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Think about the spiritual benefit that accrues because the parents love the child enough to change what they're doing. They're not going to damage the soul. Prolonged darkness damages the soul. So stop it early. Stop it early. Nip it in the bud. Get it rid of it. Stop it. Transform thinking. And there you go. Um, chapter 29, verses 15 and 17. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. And all these modern approaches to parenting that are all based on secular, unbiblical wisdom um, are actually doing just the opposite. They're damaging the very children that these experts, these social scientists and all these God-haters. Um, they're just living, they, they got these, all these things all in defiance of Scripture. And then they wonder why it doesn't work. And they wonder why. Um, because they're, they're, they think they're doing all this fine parenting. They're following all these manuals, they're following all the, the advice of these experts, these child psychologists that have testified to all these things on, on self-esteem and, and uh, all of that. Scripture says the child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Okay? We're not best buddies, we're parents. Verse 17, correct your son and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. Maybe not today. <laughs> when does that happen? Okay? When he has a son. You know, my dad was a moron. A complete blithering idiot until Bob was born. And then when I became a father, when, when we brought Bob home, and all of a sudden I had a child to raise, my dad became a genius overnight. He just was instantly 
expert on everything. Dad, what do you do with this? What do you do with that? What do you do? You know, and, and you need that third generation. That's why Adam, Seth, Enosh, and then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. You have a father, you have a son, and you have a son that has become a father. And in that multi, in that three generation blessing, we have, uh, we have that. Anyway, I think that's, I don't know how you get more plain than uh, Proverbs 29, verse 15 and 17. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother, both now and down the road and again and again and again and again. On, and it just rolls downhill to the next generation. It's worse than this generation, worse than that generation. Unless, obviously, grace steps in and the Word of God takes hold. Um, Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 9. This is the New Testament commentary on Proverbs. At least in this aspect of it. Hebrews is uh, 12, talking about parental discipline. Takes everything we just saw in Proverbs and brings it into focus for our uh, stewardship, our dispensation in the New Testament. And even more so, spotlights the, the role we have as the bride of Christ, we are sons of the Father and the Father disciplines us on the, in this way. I don't think the Jewish people were disciplined the way that church age saints are disciplined in our, in, our, in our stewardship. We are baptized into union with Jesus Christ and we have a sonship and an heirship that no Jewish person had in the Old Testament. Alright. Anyway. Um, Verse 7, let's see. Yeah, verse 7 says, uh, well, there's more. Uh, verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. The, the, the audience, the recipients of, of this letter had not yet come to this point of persecution yet. Uh, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. So they've been established long enough to start forgetting certain things. But you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And, and here we have it from uh, Job, we have it from Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. So there's discipline there. We should be under discipline. And like I say, I think New Testament is ramped up over anything that Israel would have applied out of Proverbs. Verse 7 says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's a rhetorical question, but we can answer it now because we have the doctrine in Proverbs. The son that does not, whom his father does not discipline is the son whom his father hates. He who hates his son withholds the, the, the discipline, withholds the rod. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You're bastards. Something else lost in our culture. The shame of and the reality of legitimacy versus illegitimacy. Having a baby when you're not married, that's not how God designed it. That's absolutely how God did not design it. God designed for that baby to be raised by a father and a mother in marriage. And uh, to be an illegitimate children. And then they say, oh, there's no Ill- illegitimate children. There's no illegal people. There's no, you know, and all these things are always, always against what the Bible says. There are illegitimate children. 
They're not uh, conceived and they're not raised in marriage. The Bible calls them bastards. And I, I pastor a Bible church. <laughs> All right? So I'm going to claim the language that God uses. And if people have a problem with it, then they've got a problem with what God put in His Word. Um, now, should we not? Uh, verse 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. See, the, the, the illu- earthly illustration is supposed to teach us the doctrine to take us to the reality. Parents are supposed to express the loving discipline of God the Father. If we don't, that's a problem. As husbands and wives, are we portraying Christ in the church? If we don't, that's a problem. As parents, are we reflecting the loving discipline of our Heavenly Father? If we don't, that's a problem. If we tell our children that they can flaunt authority, that they can defy curfew, that they can make up their own rules, that they can just live in flagrant defiance of authority in the family, we are painting an unbiblical, a satanic picture of of God the Father. Should we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Face it, a lot of times we're winging it. We're just doing the best we can with what we know. As seemed best to them. And I hope it's not too hard. I hope it's not too short. I pray hard. I assign this. You know, you're grounded for 30 years. Sharon says, well, okay, it's probably extreme. All right. Two weeks. Is that better? You know, we, we kind of we hash it out amongst ourselves, husband and wife, and we're working in, okay, because we want to be united. We don't want the child to feel that they can play off one against the other. So as seemed best to them, and then it's all as unto the Lord. Uh, but He, God the Father, disciplines us for our good. He's not winging it. He knows what's too hard, what's not hard enough, What's too long? What's too short? Is this discipline just for a month? Is this discipline for a year? Is this discipline 18 years of raising a child you shouldn't have fornicated to produce anyway? What is the discipline that God assigns? He knows. He knows. So that we may share His holiness. All right. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. It's not fun to go through it. But afterwards, those who have been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. See? All right. In any event, um, that's the principle there. We've got to talk about satisfaction awareness, but that's going to have to be next week. Verse 25 next week. We talk about satisfaction awareness. We want to be satisfied. We want to be content. We want our appetites to be His appetites. And uh, we want to accept His provision for His appetites. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this collection of Proverbs. Um, I feel like it was just written yesterday, Father, and not 3,000 years ago, but here we are. And uh, the Word of God is alive and powerful. It applies to our generation. It applies to our children's generation. And they're going to take it and apply it to their children's generation. So I thank you for it, Father. And I, thank, I pray that we continue to have freedom in our land to, to preach the Word in all the Word, its whole counsel. And so much of it's now being rejected as hate speech. So Father, uh, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.